You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the issues of human rights and humanitarian law. My name is Jamie Bowd, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenby Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today we'll be talking to Charles Johor, who is the Fulbright Lund University Distinguished Chair in Public International Law here at the Raoul Wallenby Institute and the Lund University Faculty of Law. He is also Professor of Law at Florida International University in Miami, USA, and a member of the International Law Commission, where he was also the chair of the drafting committee for the 70th 2018 session. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for joining me. Though the term crimes against humanity has been used in international legal context for about 70 years, uh, many people may not actually know what constitutes a crime against humanity. So how is this currently defined, and has this definition changed at all throughout time? Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, having me uh, for this podcast. Uh, crimes Against Humanity is a very interesting uh, crime. It's one of three mm-hmm. international crimes. Uh, crimes Against Humanity standing beside uh, genocide and war crimes mm-hmm. uh, that are considered core international crimes. These are crimes that the international community of states have agreed um, that if individuals commit them, those individuals could be subject to criminal liability at the international level. Uh, the reason why that is important is in the normal course, uh, such uh, crimes are prosecuted at the national level. Uh, so, for example, Sweden would have responsibility for what happens in Sweden, mm-hmm. and uh, it would prosecute criminals or individuals who commit crimes against Swedish law here. Uh, but this crimes, these uh, core international crimes, attract international responsibility for the person in that all states can basically move forward and prosecute individuals who commit them. Now, crimes against humanity as a concept is the broadest concept in terms of these international crimes. It basically is uh, defined to mean when individuals commit certain kinds of conduct that are prohibited, for example, murder or rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, within a certain context, so if there's a widespread or systematic attack against the civilian population, that would constitute a crime against humanity. So what does it mean to be widespread? Because obviously murder, if you do that in Sweden, will be prosecuted in Sweden. What's the difference between someone murdering someone here and then what does it require to become an international issue? And that's the heart of the challenge uh, for uh, crimes against humanity in the sense that if you contrast crimes against humanity to the other two international crimes that I mentioned, so war crimes Mm -hmm. and genocide, uh, for war crimes, the logic of the crime itself is that there are some things that you do not do in the context of an armed conflict. Mm -hmm. That if you engage in that behavior, that behavior is criminal, so you've committed a war crime. Uh, with respect to genocide, the core of the, the crime itself is aimed at protecting humanity's diversity. Mm-hmm. So if you target a particular group, uh, then you could, if you have the right criminal intent, mm-hmm. be found to be responsible for uh, genocide. Whereas with crimes against humanity, it initially was meant, it was tagged along with war crimes, Uh, but now it stands alone in the sense of focusing on protecting civilians. And the example of murder, uh, murder is a crime in all uh, legal systems, but if you carry out that prohibited 
conduct, the murder itself, so the taking of a, another human life within a certain context. So you mm -hmm. have widespread attacks, which suggests something, a wider scale, mm -hmm. right, widespread, or systematic attacks, so attacks that so, have been planned, for example, mm -hmm. against a large group of civilians, then that murder committed in that context of either widespread or systematic mm -hmm. qualify, can qualify as a crime against humanity. So we've mentioned murder, but what other things come under the Crimes Against Humanity banner? Um, a whole host of things. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing about Crimes Against Humanity compared to the other crimes it, that is that there isn't a single global convention on Crimes mm -hmm. Against Humanity. So it has been defined differently over the years, starting with the Nuremberg mm -hmm. uh, trials right after World War II. Mm -hmm. And the essence of it is, as it stands now, as it's defined in the one instrument that's widely supported by states, I'm mm -hmm. talking about the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court that has at least 123 states' parties at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, things like murder, uh, rape, forcible pregnancy, forcible displacement of the population, all of those and a number of other con uh, forms of uh, prohibited people like apartheid, mm -hmm. all will qualify as crime against humanity. Mm -hmm. So essentially, this list of prohibited conduct, would, if they are taking place in a widespread or systematic context, will constitute a crime against humanity. You mentioned that both genocide and war crimes have this convention, and crimes humanity doesn't. Is there a movement to try and create a similar framework for crimes against humanity? Yes, there is, um, and that's a good thing. Basically, with the experience that the international community has had mm -hmm. uh, regulating what state can and cannot do when they are in conflict with each other, mm -hmm. uh, war crimes has developed for a long period of time, such that in the 19, at the end of the 1940s, we had the Geneva Conventions, uh, four conventions that actually specified what would be considered grave breaches that would amount to war crimes, essentially. And with respect to genocide, driven very much by what happened in World War II, with the Holocaust in particular, uh, there was a movement uh, led by a Polish lawyer by the name of Raphael Lemkin, mm -hmm. uh, who pushed for the international community uh, and actually came up with the idea of, of, of genocide in mm -hmm. terms of the appellation itself, although we had seen that conduct in the context of World War II and possibly even before, if you mm -hmm. think about Turkey and Armenia yeah. and so on. Uh, for crimes against humanity, we've seen definitions used in specific contexts mm -hmm. of tribunals created after the fact to prosecute individuals who engage in that behavior. So we had the World, uh, World War II, Nuremberg example, we had crimes against humanity defined for the Tokyo Tribunal. Mm -hmm. We had, if you fast forward into the early 90s, 1993 to be specific, mm -hmm. in the International Criminal Tribunal uh, for former Yugoslavia, context as a definition there. And in 1994, another one by the Security Council for the Rwandan context. Uh, again, we created a tribunal there. So we defined it for specific purposes. Now, the, 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 you ask whether there's a movement to change that. Well, mm -hmm. the International Law Commission mm -hmm. actually has an interesting project at the moment yeah. that is meant to cure this gap. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is that we've had so many ad hoc definitions of crimes against humanity that is not entirely clear yeah. what the essence of crimes against humanity are. If you leave aside the specific context of the International Criminal Court, mm -hmm. here we're thinking about crimes against humanity as a common standard that could be used at the national level. So mm -hmm. we have a single definition that states if they were to go forward and 
draft a convention on that subject. So the movement is there. Mm -hmm. um, it started with the ILC's project on crimes against humanity from several years ago mm -hmm. that essentially had been building on some academic work that's been done in this area. And the commission, as of 2017, had completed what it uh, calls first reading, which mm -hmm. is essentially a first draft of a crimes against humanity convention that was sent up to the General Assembly, the member states of the United Nations had until December of 2018 mm -hmm. to comment. The comments have come in, and as of 2019, in uh, April and May, uh, when the Commission meets in Geneva, it will be beginning the process of doing what it considers a second reading, which mm -hmm. is essentially the second draft that at this point now takes into account the comments given by states. Mm -hmm. And essentially, towards the end of the summer, the International Law Commission would send up the second reading mm -hmm. text of the Draft Crimes Against Humanity Convention, taking into account the views of states and with a recommendation to the, st to the states, to the General Assembly, as to what it, uh, what it suggests for them to do. Mm -hmm. And we expect at this stage that the Commission will probably ask the General Assembly to either convoke diplomatic conference to negotiate on the basis mm -hmm. of the ILC draft or to actually come up with other alternatives. It could say, you know, we want you to think about it or to mm -hmm. give some time. The commission hasn't made a decision yet, but those are the kinds of recommendations that you normally see at this stage. Mm -hmm. Do you suspect that there will be a lot of contradictions and a lot of negotiation required, or do you think that the definition of crimes against humanity is generally agreed upon? Uh, the definition itself, mm -hmm. um, uh, the ILC did not want to reinvent the wheel, mm -hmm. even though there are some technical questions that are debated by international criminal lawyers mm -hmm. as to how the ICC, the International Criminal Court definition in uh, Article 7 of the Rome Statute of Crimes Against Humanity compares to customary international law. Mm -hmm. There are some debates about certain elements, but the I ILC did not want to do anything that would contradict the Rome mm -hmm. Statute in view of the fact that there's a broadly negotiated and accepted definition. So what it decided to do uh, was to adopt the definition mm -hmm. from the Rome Statute, uh, Article 7. So the uh, definition itself is not surprising. Yeah. Um, there are elements that the Commission had to change, essentially to minor tweaks mm -hmm. to accommodate the specificities of a convention. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the substance of the definition, it would be more or less ad idem with the Rome Statute on the yeah. same the same with the Rome Statute. Mm -hmm. um, that has both uh, pros and cons, mm -hmm. and uh, the Commission will be revisiting some of the, uh, the these issues in light of the comments of states. And I can just give you one specific example. Mm -hmm. In Rome, it was a big deal in terms of how uh, essentially uh, gender-based violence was mm -hmm. dealt with. And so there was a compromise that was forged uh, where you had agreement between countries that are normally not in alliance with each other mm -hmm. to push a particular understanding of gender. Mm -hmm. That was written into the Rome Statute. Yeah. And there are many people looking back now, about 20 mm -hmm. years after Rome, the yeah. statute was negotiated in 1998, that are thinking that is a little bit outdated. And mm -hmm. so perhaps we could go back and revisit that. It yeah. will be for the Commission to decide, but more or less we have in place the definition. So what kind of practical impact would having a convention make in terms of actually dealing with people that are committing crimes against humanity and the protection of human rights in general? There are at least three impacts. Mm -hmm. One is the starting point that the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court does not actually formally require mm -hmm. 
-hmm. countries to uh, incorporate crimes against humanity into their national law. Mm -hmm. It is rather implied because the Rome Statute system, the entire system around which the International Criminal Court is centered, mm -hmm. assumes that the first responsibility to prosecute those crimes is at the national level yeah. of the state members of that treaty. Mm -hmm. So at this point, 123 countries would have the duty first, mm -hmm. and only when they fail in that duty, either because they are unwilling or they are unable, that the International Criminal Court's secondary jurisdiction would kick in. Mm -hmm. Here is an opportunity for us to actually lay a clear obligation in a convention mm -hmm. that states would have to pass a national law incorporating this crime, mm -hmm. which is why, as you can see now, it makes sense to follow the Rome yeah. Statute because the idea is we will then better complement mm -hmm. the Rome system so we don't reinvent the wheel and even perhaps create problems for states mm -hmm. that would have to abide by obligations under two instruments if they were mm -hmm. to move forward with a convention yeah. on crimes against humanity. So that's a huge advantage mm -hmm. in giving clarity as mm -hmm. to what the obligation is for states to define crimes against humanity into national law. That's one. Mm -hmm. Second point, the Rome Statute system has a fairly general, and by now, 20 years later, we see weak cooperation regime. Mm -hmm. The court itself cannot do anything without the support of its states' parties. Mm -hmm. And part of that is the nature of the obligations that are imposed on states in terms of cooperating with the tribunal. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see a lot of on enforced arrest warrants and so on. The ILC draft convention has some very robust uh, cooperation provisions with respect to mutual legal assistance mm -hmm. between states, which is significant and, and do not exist at present in the Rome Statute system. Rather, they tend to be the kinds of obligations you see with transnational organized crimes conventions mm -hmm. at the international level, but not for core international crimes conventions. And then secondly, uh, extradition provisions, where states would have a mechanism to cooperate with each other. And the idea is that those mechanisms could be used, if so desired by the states, to also apply in relation to the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge second additional value of this project, the mutual legal assistance and extradition provisions that do not at present exist in the Rome system, so it will be complementary to that. And thirdly, and this is very important, uh, the UN member states are about 193 at the moment. Mm -hmm. While the Rome statute has received broad support from about 123 countries that are formal parties, and there are countries that are not parties yet that are signatories, mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a political pushback at the court. Yeah. So if you imagine a world where the Rome Statute does not achieve universality, wherein mm -hmm. every single member state of the UN, for example, is a member of that system, mm -hmm. this becomes an alternative for them. Yeah. So if you don't want to join the International Criminal Court in The Hague, but you have a Crimes Against Humanity Convention that you want to use to mm -hmm. apply to the national level so you can prosecute the crimes. Mm -hmm. That's huge in terms of filling a huge gap in terms of protection mm -hmm. of crimes uh, of those individuals who are out there who are suffering in all kinds of contexts because yeah. their governments decide to commit crimes against humanity or somebody engages mm -hmm. in crimes against humanity against them. So three major developments. Yeah. One, having a consistent definition. Mm -hmm. Secondly, having a robust mutual legal assistance and extradition uh, provisions, and thirdly, opening up the door for more countries, mm -hmm. even those that do not want to join an international court, to use this convention to mm -hmm. advance the fight against impunity. And do you think having this option of not having to join the Roman, do you think that more countries will actually take that up? Um, that's the hope. One could always question whether 
countries that have not joined the existing court might now have a reason to do so mm-hmm. if they are presented another opportunity. But I'm generally of the view that because the regime is more about leaving it to the state mm-hmm. at the national level to deal with these crimes, yeah. essentially it could be a way for those states that have not joined the International Criminal Court to mm-hmm. say, hang on, we want to show you that we support the fight against mm-hmm. impunity. In fact, while we don't want to join the court in The Hague, mm-hmm. we will be part of this convention, so we'll yeah. do this at the national level. Mm-hmm. So I'm very hopeful about it, and I believe that it's something that could be said by a lot of people in this area of work, mm-hmm. that they're hopeful about the possibilities that the convention could offer states. You mentioned that in certain contexts it could be really useful. Do you have any specific examples of where crimes against humanity has either been used in the past or could, if this new convention came through, how it could actively be used if there's certain contexts where you see already now where it could be extremely useful? I think if we step back Mm -hmm. for a moment and think about the law of international crimes, Mm -hmm. especially going back to where we started about the core international Mm -hmm. crimes, Um, We talked about war crimes, which Mm -hmm. require an armed conflict in the first place to be committed. Mm -hmm. So that's a high threshold. So it means it only applies in certain contexts. And there's a whole debate about the extent to which war crimes can occur in the context of non-international armed conflict, because Mm -hmm. the regime of war crimes law is stronger when it comes to international armed conflicts. And if you think about the world in which we live today, a lot of contexts are actually non-international armed Mm -hmm. conflict contexts. So that's one. And then second, if you think about genocide and how specific it it is, especially that element of the mental state, the special intent, Mm -hmm. as the lawyers would call it, that's required to prove genocide, Mm -hmm. you see the utility of crimes against humanity because in fact it is the broadest available mm-hmm. of the three crimes and that's a huge thing because in fact it was not always the case yeah. that crimes against humanity law was not tethered to a conflict where the okay. whole thing started at mm-hmm. Nuremberg was in fact you had to show that there was a war, so the so-called conflict nexus, before you can show the crimes against humanity. But over the decades, as we've used these crimes in different settings, Mm -hmm. some of which you mentioned earlier, we've decoupled uh, crimes against humanity from a need to show conflict in the first place. So this is significant, right? Because essentially we'll be cementing this idea that you do not need an armed conflict for crimes against humanity to occur. In terms of specific examples, there are many conflicts going on around the world today, mm-hmm. um, quite a few of which would basically uh, meet the crimes against humanity definition, um, whereby there isn't jurisdiction for the International Criminal Court. But let's say those states were willing to join um, the, the, this crimes against humanity convention, then there will be that obligation on the part of those states to do something. And mm-hmm. if you take a concrete example uh, of Syria, mm-hmm. Um, We have uh, a commission that has looked at the situation in Syria, and in terms of the International Criminal Court, Syria is not a party Mm -hmm. to the International Criminal Court. So the challenge for accountability there is that the only way you can have international crimes being prosecuted relative to that situation Mm -hmm. is if you had a Security Council referral to the International Criminal Court of that Mm -hmm. situation. Now that requires this permanent members of the Security Council to not veto that. And that is, of course, it's a political, <laughs> let's put it that yeah. way, right? We've seen some referrals in relation to Sudan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen a referral in relation to Libya. Yeah. So it is, in principle, possible. But looking at the geopolitics and looking at the fact that China, for example, has made its position very clear mm-hmm. in the United Nations 
on this question mm -hmm. is very unlikely. Now, mm -hmm. having said that, if Syria had been a member of, uh, had signed up to, let's say, Crimes Against Humanity Convention, mm -hmm. and even if Syria was not willing to proceed against those individuals, there's a nice provision in the ILC draft article mm -hmm. that allows other states to request yeah. the person who is of interest to them to be extradited to them. So mm -hmm. in a sense, there's a duty on the part of Syria to prosecute or to extradite the person to a state that would. That is mm -hmm. significant. Yeah. And there isn't that obligation at this moment in, mm -hmm. t in terms of crimes against humanity law of extradite or prosecute. There's an argument and a debate about it, but relative to the international court, no. So again, this is happening at the national level, and yes. that's the kind of gap that could be filled by this convention, mm -hmm. where protection for human rights can actually occur, even if the state itself does not want to do anything, because other states have a duty to do so. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, what happens then if, say, Syria doesn't sign up to the convention? Do the states surrounding it still have that legal obligation if they are signed to the convention? Um, no. And the way international law works um, is based on consent. Mm -hmm. and it's based on the consent of the state. So it would be the sovereign right of the state of Syria as the sovereign right of all other member states of the United Nations, or all other states, actually, because you don't have to be a member yeah. of the UN to participate in terms of, let's say, future draft convention on crimes against humanity and even mm -hmm. adoption of a convention. But here is where it could get very interesting. Mm -hmm. Maybe not in the immediate, in the short term, mm -hmm. but in the long term, it, the argument that some crimes, uh, crimes under not a treaty, but mm -hmm. also under customary international law, yeah. has been made mm -hmm. uh, with respect to war crimes, it has been made with respect to genocide, and has even been made with respect to crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. So you could look at the evidence that suggests, for example, a large number of states have accepted a particular crime mm -hmm. to, towards proving that there's a customary law crime. Mm -hmm. And in that instance, provided that that state has not been what they call a persistent objector, mm -hmm. that regime could apply to it. Yeah. And in those circumstances, that state can also be brought into the fold, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So there is always that possibility that the effect of having a convention mm -hmm. is to broaden the reach of justice, above yeah. and beyond when a state decides to sign up, because mm -hmm. it's become common practice of states yeah. that is accepted by all of them. And so in that context, it could be. So not in the short term, but in the longer term, if you see massive support. So we have, for example, tremendous support by states. I mean, it's now about 40 to 50 years after the Geneva Conventions, mm -hmm. but it's more or less universal. Yeah. So there is no one who debates today mm -hmm. that war crimes are crimes under customary law. Yeah. And nobody, I mean, there are people, but not a lot of people <laughs> who have credibility who say genocide, yeah. even though genocide was in principle not thought of in the same way at the mm -hmm. time it was created, it, there's a broad acceptance now, including jurisprudence from International Court of Justice and other mm -hmm. tribunals that says this is a cost, I mean, this is yeah. customary international law. So in those contexts, the question would be, well, can then a state rely on that to prosecute? Mm -hmm. And so we might have the similar possibilities for crimes against humanity, yeah. but it would not solve the problem in the, if you will, going back to the question, mm -hmm. in the immediate period, but down the line it could. Yeah, so it's more of a long term. Feel. Solution. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Actually, going back to that and the long term, how long would it actually take for a convention to be ratified and put into practice if it's only at second reading point now? Yeah, it all depends really on the political will. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back to the idea of consent and the role mm -hmm. of states in creating the law that binds them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we've seen um, recommendations come from the International Law Commission, mm -hmm. and admittedly, it's been a little bit of a time, while now, it's a little mm -hmm. while now since they would send a recommendation, the General Assembly would immediately act on the recommendation, mm -hmm. and essentially, in some cases, would convoke a diplomatic conference and negotiate a treaty on mm -hmm. the basis of this. Um, but then we haven't seen much of that lately. Yeah. Um, the last major assignment from, for the IOC, which is slightly different in the sense that it was asked by the General Assembly itself mm -hmm. to do something, which is a prepared draft statute for a in permanent international criminal court, mm -hmm. which had been an idea that took about 40 or so years. Yeah. So we've been kind of mulling it over for a while. That did move very quickly once they asked for the draft. So it could be that if there is political will, that mm -hmm. this can happen in short order. It could be literally within a year, you will have mm -hmm. convoked a conference, negotiated maybe basis on the basis of an ILC draft text, mm -hmm. made changes to it based on your own preferences as states, mm -hmm. and adopted an instrument. Or, and this might be a little bit more realistic, it could take a few years. Yeah. And then there's also a separate step of once you have the convention mm -hmm. um, adopted formally by states to have the necessary signatures and the ratifications for it to enter into force. Mm -hmm. If I go back to the International Criminal Court example, mm -hmm. which is in a sense a close one in this area, even though yeah. there the question was creating an international court, mm -hmm. but it was pro prohibiting things like crimes against humanity as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, a threshold of 60 states yeah. that were required for the treaty to enter into force. Mm -hmm. uh, the treaty was signed in July 1998 mm -hmm. at Rome, and in 2002, July 1, it had already accomplished the number of ratifications required, mm -hmm. the 60, and then that time window that it needed to pass for it to be triggered by July 1 of 2002. Mm -hmm. So it took from 1998 to about 2002 for the treaty to enter into force. Yeah effectively and then it, because it's continued to go on in terms of getting more states to sign up mm -hmm. so it could be a few years it's a yeah. long-term process uh, mm -hmm. for states uh, they require a lot of steps yeah. to show their consent and obviously once um, the treaty is enforced there is also the sometimes higher likelihood of states acceding and it's a slightly mm -hmm. different process a little bit simpler yeah. for them but yeah it's a multi-year process but it mm -hmm. is a great development for, for us to have at the international level. And my hope is that uh, states that generally supported this yeah. project, um, that generally recognize that it would be complementary to the Rome Statute as opposed to undermining the Rome Statute, yeah. that could help bolster the accountability regime that we've been working towards mm -hmm. for the better part of 50 years, would be enthusiastic mm -hmm. um, in the same way that they have been with respect to war crimes and genocide to bring a crime, uh, Crimes Against Humanity uh, for, uh, Convention forward as a priority. Mm -hmm. I'm very hopeful about that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have a bit of hope. I think especially, you know, in this um, sort of context, social context these days, there's not a lot of hope <laughs> necessarily going around. Yeah, and, and it's very clear that the timing could mm -hmm. be a bit better yeah. uh, in the sense of, pushback mm -hmm. at international or even regional institutions. Yeah. Uh, yet, um, if you look at the progress mm -hmm. at the international level, it has not always been linear. Yeah. Um, we've had steps forward mm -hmm. and sometimes slight steps backward. Uh, my hope is that the international community would, uh, and I have to believe in this because to even believe in international law as an idea, mm -hmm. uh, would recognize yeah. that the gains I mean, the peace that we enjoy now mm -hmm. 
may seem to be, and again, I say this with qualifiers because, of course, there are conflicts. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it feels like there are conflicts all over the place. Yeah. Uh, yet, where the international community was in 1945 and where the international community is today in 2019 is entirely different. Yeah. And part of that, part of that is that we have created um, multilateral institutions mm -hmm. like the United Nations that have become a forum mm -hmm. for states to iron out differences. So in as much as you might feel like the world is awash with human rights atrocities and so on, we cannot forget that you have a more complex world mm -hmm. in which you have more states than existed in 1945 and somehow we're able to bring together the international community to agree on a path forward. Mm -hmm. And if you think about human rights, I mean, the entire field of human rights was more or less, if you think about the normative legal architecture, you're talking mm -hmm. about the International Bill of Rights with the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, the Economic mm -hmm. Social Rights Convention, and you talk about torture, the w conventions that specialize on women, children, mm -hmm. disabled people. I mean, the world is a different world now than it was mm -hmm. um, in 1945. And so for me, that signals that even though we might have a little bit of a blip at yeah. a given point in time, we see this movement and pushback against regional and even international institutions that we will go back to the wisdom of what we've accomplished. Yeah. And that as part of that, the recognition that when you have these crimes mm -hmm. that are essentially a threat not just to the societies in which these crimes are committed, when crimes against humanity are committed in Syria, they affect the entire international community mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Morally, and now we're saying hopefully legally as well mm -hmm. in terms of your obligations, it becomes inevitable that the match forward, we're talking about responsibility to protect. We're talking about new ideas that did not exist yeah. uh, back then. So for me, um, it's a hopeful picture. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that the work of the commission um, would be at least a starting point yeah. for states um, to address crimes against humanity. Um, to have a convention that puts crimes against humanity on the same level mm -hmm. as the other core international crimes and in many yeah. ways improves upon what those conventions had mm -hmm. because we don't have the same extradition and mutual legal assistance provisions yeah. in the ge genocide or uh, convention or the Geneva conventions. Mm -hmm. So what we're offering now is also reflecting the times that we've yeah. had some experience with this area and there could be a path forward for the international community. Mm -hmm. If it turns out that this is brought in and those extra beneficial things are applied, is there a way to retrospectively apply them to also the genocide and the war crimes convention? Great question and it's something that's been debated. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes not as much as one might have liked. Mm -hmm. um, in the early days of the project at the International Law Commission, it's a small group, I think yeah. possibly even not even a group, one or two members that raised the question as to whether the commission could not be more ambitious mm -hmm. in terms of the scope of its project, which would rec have required in the mind uh, set that is taking this approach, looking at how it could help bolster the war crimes and genocide conventions mm -hmm. in terms of what's out there at the moment. But there wasn't support for that. At the level of the General Assembly, a small number of voices, I think, mm -hmm. a few states, have asked that question. Yeah. Now, what is important to add here on, the, on this particular issue is that there is a separate project at the moment mm -hmm. driven um, by a group of states, in particular the Netherlands, 
that is proposing a to have effectively a convention that would address all the core international crimes mm -hmm. that would include mutual legal assistance and extradition. What is unclear mm -hmm. is how far that project has gone yeah. and how developed it is. Mm -hmm. The sponsors of the initiative seem to uh, suggest that they are gone far, mm -hmm. but we haven't seen an official draft. And there have been different moments where it was suggested that they would be convoking a diplomatic conference to negotiate such a treaty. Mm -hmm. My hope is that because the International Law Commission has done a tremendous amount of work on the crimes against humanity piece, that those states that are sponsors of this initiative, mm -hmm. uh, that is effectively also geared at helping to bolster the legal regime that we have now, would adopt yeah. the ILC's text and essentially mm -hmm. give it the political backing yeah. that is needed and use it as a base mm -hmm. to go forward and negotiate a convention. Because in the end, of course, you need to have a strong group of supportive states mm -hmm. to drive the process of having a convention yeah. that is a credible convention and also to put in the effort at the level of the General Assembly, at the level of getting the convention adopted, at the level of having it ratified. And even yeah. if you think about countries that are, don't have the capacity, getting the support to incorporate those in their national law so we can actually use this, mm -hmm. this convention. That is a little bit unfortunate at the moment in terms of we don't know yeah. um, what would happen with that project, but it's a great question just to say, Yes, it will make a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Personally, I have to say, I, I wasn't at the International Law Commission. I happen mm -hmm. to have the privilege of serving there now. I, and I, when I came in as a new member, I mm -hmm. added my voice that yeah. this would have been something that we really should do mm -hmm. um, in terms of really opening up the space. Now, I can understand the arguments against mm -hmm. because, of course, there was also a concern that then when you open it up in that way, you're already touching an existing set of treaty regimes yeah. and the obligations of states, and that could be sensitive. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. There are good arguments yeah. and the good reasons why the Commission chose to just focus on crimes against mm -hmm. humanity, but it does raise the question mm -hmm. of what then do you end up having at the end of the day in terms of yeah. the legal framework that reflects the reality of the times and the more experience that we've had mm -hmm. see, since 1948 and 1949. Yeah. You mentioned about bringing your own voice into it, which leads me to the question, we've spoken a lot about what states are doing and what international bodies are doing. What can people do at an individual level if they want to get this supported or let their states sort of know that yeah, we do want this kind of protection. Yeah, I I think there are a lot. There, there's a lot that can be done. Mm -hmm. In fact, individuals uh, may have more impact that they sometimes mm -hmm. give themselves credit for, in the sense that in the end, states are comprised of individuals, yeah. and the states respond mm -hmm. to advocacy. States are very aware of the views of civil society. Mm -hmm. And one of the very positive things about this particular project is that this has been by and large reflected in the sense of at least specialists in the area. So mm -hmm. for example, if you think about the major human rights organizations, especially yeah. uh, Amnesty International, they've been very engaged in the processes of the commission in terms of studying what's happening at the ILC, being part of workshops and commenting as the project was developing every single year on, on every report of the special rapporteur mm -hmm. and coming back once the commission has made a decision on a particular issue all the way to the final stage where now we had a mass number of almost unprecedented oh, wow. um, level of civil society engagement commenting mm -hmm. on yeah. the first reading draft. So that's been very, very positive. We've had a lot of academic institutions, universities, um, and academics who are specialists in the area engaging with the process, mm -hmm. commenting, 
and as a, a great example of that, we have now just this uh, past few months a whole special issue of one of the leading journals mm -hmm. in the area of international criminal law, focusing on unpacking all the key pieces mm -hmm. of the the draft convention and commenting on what they find positive and where they see some some gaps and what could be improved, uh, which is again doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So we have a lot of NGO academic uh, engagement. And also we've seen a high level of engagement by states yeah. than we normally see in terms of giving written comments. So what can individuals do? They can do all kinds of things. They can call their foreign ministries. They can actually become advocates mm -hmm. with, along with either individually or with, other, with NGOs or others yeah. to say, hang on, what is happening with this? Like mm -hmm. there will be an important piece that will be out of, when this finishes at the ILC, when this mm -hmm. goes to uh, states uh, yep. with a recommendation to the General Assembly mm -hmm. uh, by about uh, August, September of this year, yep. the General Assembly will be debating the, all aspects of the International Law Commission's report, including any of its recommendations on the Draft Crimes Against Humanity Convention. To get states moving mm -hmm. on that will require a lot of advocacy. That's not yep. something that the Commission or its members mm -hmm. necessarily out there publicly would do. Yeah. It would be then in a sense, the commission has done its work, it's now up to state, and the global community. And yeah. I think there's a big role there mm -hmm. for all these actors, civil society in, in, in its wide variety, mm -hmm. ac academics, um, institutions, like the institution where we are, the mm -hmm. Wallenberg Institute yeah. could be a voice, you know, engaging with the mm -hmm. Swedish Foreign Ministry in the Nordic countries, even having yeah. workshops and discussions about this and the need for it mm -hmm. and highlighting the benefits and pushing states to say, hang on, there's a global interest in this. Yes, we want you to do it. Mm -hmm. And when those have been combined with good technical work, which I think yeah. on balance is what you will have from the ILC, is always led to positive results in the end. We saw that, I mean, civil society was crucial mm -hmm. to the success of the negotiations related to the International Criminal Court. Yeah. We all know that the International Criminal Court we have now, mm -hmm. um, as challenging as it is in terms of some of its experiences so far, mm -hmm. it would have been completely different, but for global civil society. Yeah. We've seen that with respect to landmines. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, area after area where you have massive civil society engagement has made a huge difference to the international community. I think that's actually quite a nice, hopeful message to uh, finish up on. So thank you so much for your time and expertise. It's really nice talking to you. Yeah, same here. Thank you for, for the opportunity. And um, I hope that uh, we'll be able to have a conversation maybe in the future yeah. where we'll be looking back and saying, yes, it all happened. That was Charles Johor, who is the Fulbright Lund University Distinguished Chair in Public International Law here at the Raoul Wallenby Institute and the Lund University Faculty of Law. This has been On Human Rights. For the latest updates about the Raoul Wallenby Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.